0: Welcome back to Night School, episode 30, The Poems of Robert Frost, part one, and back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, sir.
1: Good to be back. How's it going?
0: It's going well. It's a Friday. It's always happy to have a Friday, even though we sort of work weekends. Weekends feel different no matter what, and you know, regardless of which path you take. And so I suppose I should introduce, though I can't introduce well, our next guest, which is... Robert Frost. Um, and we'll be reading uh, based on the Poetry Foundation. Again, we're using the Poetry Foundation. And uh, you directed me to their 101 on him. So apparently that's a theme that they do with the, these great poets, especially the Americans, it seems. The, they have the 101 pages that um, I'm sharing the screen now for those uh, on YouTube uh, that have some good scholarship and direction uh, you know, on Frost and his context. In the context of his work and where America was at that time and they thematically group his poems and that's sort of what we're using to guide us when we go through these poets Dickinson included but the, the starting point we took was the starting point I think four out of five dentists four out of five teachers and just a lot for one contrarian in the group would start on and that's the road not taken so why'd you want to start here, Wes, or did you want to start here? I know I suggested Frost and you had you did not early want Frost.
1: I it's not that I don't want Frost. I, I've got so many poets uh and so many poems that I think are worth reading um that his name is sort of uh I mean it's it's one of the most he's one of the most famous, if not the most famous, most well known. Uh, American poets and so if we're doing a course on American poetry on the one hand, we got to include him He's got to be there. You know, he's crucial Um, On the other hand, he's a little bit cliche and you know, well, no one wants to be like that predictable but uh, you know, one of the things that poetry does as I think we've talked about before and one of the things that art does generally is like sort of bring your attention to sort of wonderful things about about the everyday And uh, so I guess, you know, those poets who are, those artists who are cliché are just the ones that we've kind of forgotten how to see as as wonderful as they truly are. Um, I think that's great. And it's also
0: a more, um, I think, sanguine or kind way of reading the poets because it's not as if it's particularly their fault that they've become so popular. And in fact, that does appear to be part of the goal of being a poet that one, you know, extract and disseminate information so valuable that it's worth becoming cliche. But something I also realized about my own self is that, it, at least, and especially with artistic predilection, and this perhaps showing the Pareto distribution or Price's Law of art that we only see the best of the best. And that is true about music that gets played on the radio. We only hear, you know, like what, 50 to 100 total songs out of the tens of thousands that are made a year. It's only the top, but so much poetry and art and movies and shows I, or so many, I have not seen precisely because I had heard that they were cliche or everybody knew about them. But I do also believe now that that has been to my own detriment, because again, I was relying on the opinions of others, um, even, even in those matters. And so I think it will be, I think it will still be of some benefit for me, and this is how I'm seeing it, even if even if it turns out that that opinion is true, but now I can speak to that opinion with intelligence, sort of moving one line up on the platonic line of thought.
1: Right on. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, well, I think there's also kind of a a desire to be able to enter into these conversations and you can enter in, you know, with some kind of firsthand knowledge, uh, which is probably preferable, or you can enter in just as kind of reacting and, and, saying what you've, you know, heard other people say, or, you know, responding to the fact that other people are saying stuff. And those, you know, those are the ways that we have to kind of talk about most things because there isn't time to get firsthand knowledge of everything. Right. So, so the ones that we do decide to spend time on, like we've got to kind of be selective, I think. Um, Anyway, I, I I do like this poem and uh, I think it's, a good one to start with if we're gonna do some frost. So um do you wanna read it or shall I? Um I wanna interpret this one really badly,
0: but I I, I wanna hear what you have to say too. Um so I think I think it is my my go, as it were, just to use the vernacular of my youth. All uh-huh. right. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm sorry I could not travel both. Be one traveler long I stood. And looked down one, as far I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I, I just have a question for you, just to break convention for a second, Wes. Do yeah. you think it is those last two lines that make this poem seem cliched and would it be more masterful without them if there were not that sort of cocksure claim, which is sort of part of at least epic poetry. It seems to be less part of lyric poetry, but the the claim to have taken the one less traveled, it seems like a veiled simple metaphor for his own life or his own poetic art.
1: Does that make this poem seem shallow? I think that's the danger uh, certainly of of reading this poem uh, in a classroom setting, um, or you know, a, uh, any kind of seminar, you know, community seminar or something like that, right? Where you're trying to develop an idea of poetry as this sort of deep, powerful, and dangerous thing, right? You might succumb to the danger of giving a kind of pat answer to the meaning of the poem, you know, and that's probably what a lot of students of whatever age, you know, they probably have been trained up to To kind of do that, they know that that 's sort of what 's expected when you read a poem you you find the meaning of the poem and you you know extol how 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 deep and profound it is right and that itself can become a kind of caricature and, and shallow process, and then you sort of move on to the next one and i don 't you know i don 't say that because I think this poem is shallow, but because I think it does it leaves itself self open to or, or readers of it leave themselves open to that um that happening. And, uh, and that would be a shame. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that there is some recent kind of, uh, uh, not controversy, but you know, a revival of interest in this poem, not that long ago, I uh, came across this article on the Paris review, which, you know, things from there get kind of shared around on the internet. And so, uh, someone had written a book, David Orr. With two R's in his last name, wrote a book about Robert Frost, specifically about this poem and how it's, uh, he calls it The Road Not Taken, Finding America in the poem Everyone Loves and Almost Everyone Gets Wrong. <laughs> so he takes issue with just kind of what we're describing, right, this idea that it's a poem about a guy who took the road less traveled, whereas Actually, it's a poem about a guy telling you that he took the road less traveled. <laughs> uh, seems to be his thesis in that piece, if I'm remembering right. Um, and I, I think that it's a much more interesting way to uh, kind of uh, pose, you know, the, the problem for ourselves of like, so what, you know, what makes a poem great or what makes a decision the right decision? Um, it's got to involve a certain amount of bias on our part of, you know, kind of looking back at it and. And trying to uh, sort of post hoc justification our way towards deep meaning, you know, for for a small decision or for a big one, for our, our life as a whole.
0: Right, and I agree with you that what we like to add to the conversation is what we do is we amplify the imagery within the 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 poem, and so what we do is we extract additional information that might be embedded within it or apply information like a puzzle piece to another that directly uh connects to it and so what we do then which i think makes it which is counter looking for the single deep meaning of the poem which is seemingly the sort of cliched schoolroom thing you attempt to do to please your high school english teacher um uh who like professor treelani will then think that you have said something grand um but that for, for instance, I think we could just use this as an example. I think what we do to unpack a poem and to attach to it is sort of like how experience unfolds. And so in just seeing all that additional information, it is easier to see what the true message of the poem is and how it could not possibly be cliche if you come to it along the right road. Or even if it happens to be cliche, cliche at a different level of analysis. Um,
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember, and I'm often reminded of this when I, you know, come across some kind of, you know, insight. And then a little later I'm reading along and realize either I read it somewhere or I'm reading it and it's been out there for a long time. Right. It's like everything that is cliche somewhere is also like a new insight to somebody each time they discover it. Right. 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 Very, very powerful. So, you know it's important not to uh not to take this kind of thing for granted and so the first thing i'd say about this poem like getting back to the text just the very first image of the two roads that diverge in a yellow wood that makes me think of of our guy dante right in the middle of his life's way and it's it's such an interesting variation on that dante that dantean image of the dark wood right and this is a solitary traveler, right? He emphasized that I could not travel both and be one traveler. Whereas Dante uses the, as we pointed out, right, the, the, the first person plural, our life's way. And so it's such a different, it's a yellow wood. It's it's a kind of fall or autumnal, um, not a dark wood. Uh, it's a fading kind of image. And he talks about the falling leaves as well uh, later in this poem here. Um, the the image is one of of making a decision, right? And you have two options that look just equally good. I mean, that's a kind of interesting. Um, whereas for Dante, of course, right, he wants to go the short way, but has to end up going the long way. There ends up being sort of just one right way. I, I think that that is an interesting image of of the modern kind of predicament of of seeing a kind of value in in various options, like the an extreme example would be like a relativism where you can't determine which is the better option you can't say that there is such a thing anymore and and that's a real you know a real problem it's not you know explicit here but i think it's pretty um implicit perhaps if you want to read it that way that there's something like that going on here i would uh,
0: yeah sorry i just wanted to agree with you really quickly and um i can say something that that after your after all your points, or or now, because I think you're dead on the money.
1: Well, go for it, yeah. Because I, I mean, I just think that that's an interesting starting point for this poem yeah. to, to think about it in those terms. So, what do you think well, about?
0: Yeah, that? May, maybe let's try a paragraph or stanza by stanza because it, it might there might be uh, there might be a bit in here just because I, I see that relative relativism too. So instead instead of leaving the straight way and being in the forest, indicating just Uh, of the right place to be and the wrong place to be, which I would say is not only Dante's model, but also Virgil's model. In the underworld, um, in book six of the Aeneid, you either go down to Tartarus, which is what Dante ends up doing, which is why he represents the Inferno, and why he says he actually goes much deeper than Virgil as a poet, because he doesn't just focus on, like the classical poets and philosophers often did, that which is high, but also that which is low, is deeply alchemical image. that you know and he did experience some real lows being being exiled but a virgil has his hero go to the elysium heaven so he has two options and also there is not only in the uh um the aeneid mentioned but also in the odyssey mentioned these two gates the gates of horn and ivory uh penelope has a Dream, And then she, she tells to the thief in front of her who actually happens to be, or excuse me, the beggar in front of her who actually happens to be Odysseus, oh, dreams are careless things and they come from the gate of horn from which true dreams come and also ivory from which false dreams come. And Aeneas actually, interestingly, leaves through the gate of ivory through the underworld in uh, book six. And so, which led many commentators to suggest that he is himself a representation of a false dream or a piece of propaganda for Augustus Caesar, which is one way to you know, superficially read the Aeneid. But in all these classical instances, Odyssey, I'm, excuse me if I said the Iliad earlier, Aeneid and in um, Dante's medieval work, The Divine Comedy, there is clearly a right way to go and a wrong way to go. And often the right way is the hard way. Uh, going through the gate of horn, the hard truths, rather than the fanciful perfections. Um, but um, but I would say that he is diverting from the classical model. And he is sort of tra- putting in that sort of um, American individualism with those three I's. And then even just structurally, you get those two twos and three ands. Um, but I, I just completely agree with you on that, that I, I see that he is sort of injecting or or feeling and transmitting that relativism at least at this point
1: yeah and so you know he's he poses this problem and he looks as far as he can but the road bends right it's not a straight road right there's no clear choice here there's no moral uh superiority on the part of either of these paths so then he takes the other and gives his reason as just as fair uh, and it had the better claim, beca- perhaps, because it was grassy and wanted wear, right? So then, like, he immediately undercuts that reason. Though, as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. Uh, what I'm taking that to mean is, you know, on the one hand, he gets the sense that this one is the less traveled road, but he's kind of admitted to himself right in the middle of this poem that, you know really, they're worn about the same. There's not really a difference there, so he's kind of again sort of flattering himself that he has chosen this path because it was the less popular right the the less traveled one that makes him seem like that kind of American individualist uh you know finding a new way his own way and in, in the world um we we love to tell that that story about ourselves and It's a very inspiring story and it, you know, in many cases it it has some truth to it, but in another respect, you know, the differences there are really not that salient. Um, It seems like the more important thing is that that's the reason that he has come up with, um, like for what he did, the the decision he in fact made, because he had to take one of them, right? He couldn't take both and be one person.
0: Okay, and just to clarify, to make sure that my next point is grounded on fact, well, how do you interpret, though, as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same? Does that mean that they were actually, from the beginning, uh, worn the same, or that it is his passing itself that makes this new path worn about the same as the old one, indicating that he went the untrodden path and, uh, uh, rather than the trodden path?
1: I can see the, the second meaning there. I, I would assume that he would say then, though, as for that, my passing there, like, wore them. I, I, don't, I guess I don't quite see the, the grammar working um, with that had worn them. That, to me, implies that that's happened before he sets down that, that road. Maybe he can't quite see that until he's already on the path. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like, he's the one who makes them equal once he sets down that path. in some sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Maybe I mean and I don't necessarily so if there is an argument about the meaning of those lines, I don't necessarily like that interpretation, but we can put that on a branch if we interpret it as he realizes it when do you see the other interpretation as he realizes during the course of his walking that even though he thought that this 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 path was like sort of grassy and green and perfect, that actually it's not. And that actually it's very similar to the other. Because that one would make my next point much easier to make.
1: Sorry, I think that's borne out by the following stanza too. it. And so, yeah. yeah, I would say go, go for it. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so I see a superficial way to see that, of course, which is the grass is always greener, right? Like once he gets to where he is, He realizes that the other plate or that where seemed to be the good place is actually just the average place because that's where he now finds himself. But I see a sort of deeper way to see it based on that too, which is the sort of equality of choices that one makes, that it's not necessarily uh, the path one takes, but one, what one makes of it, that meaning, as Emerson says, that one takes one's giant with one that wherever it is, one goes because one is a psychic being and one is made of the habits that one has built into one's brain one's neurology as well as one's personality and traits you take who you are wherever you go and so you make of the world or wherever you're going in it whatever path you're going down the same essentially regardless of the objective place it happens to be that it would be somewhere else so it could be a different city or a different job or a different people but you essentially carve out the same niche wherever you go, sort of like a beaver building a dam. And so I I think there is a deeper way to see it too, not just as the grass is always greener, but to actually get into what that means exactly. Why is it that you would project an image of an ideal future, and then once you get there, you realize it's just plain old you, and it's not as grand as you had hoped it had been. And I think you understand something about you know, what the function of the imagination is there to draw you into an, uh, a potentially ideal future from the quote-unquote unbearable present, but uh, but also that the the only, you never escape you. You can just make you, and therefore the place in which you exist, better, and that rather than questioning or wavering on one's choices constantly, one could, you know, potentially do that.
1: I like that, and I, I mean, I think that's kind of, there's the shift that takes place then in the following, <coughs> excuse me, the following stanza here. right? He says, both equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. I, I think that's kind of a cool image of, of a blank page as well, right? The leaves of grass. We talked about the leaves meaning pages is one of its meanings. And so no step, right? That's like, you haven't written on that page yet. Um, I could see that being sort of the uh the uh, meta you know poetic meaning here. But um but basically right like these roads are equally un uh unwalked by this particular person and even more so like they're equally unwalked by by anyone, right? The passing had warned them about the same. The the other way to turn that around is to say the the lack of passing had you know left them untrodden so he sort of switches the direction of his thought here and he gives himself another out like the reason that he went down the one he did because he's keeping the other one for another day you know he exclaims this and maybe there's a certain ruefulness to it because he knows that it's not so he says so right away right knowing how way leads on to way i doubted if i should ever come back so i don't know whether that's yeah uh sort of laughing at his own expense, or he actually wishes he could, you know, go back and see what was down that other path around the bend. Um, he, he sort of knows all along that that's not the real meaning, uh, behind his decision, the real reason behind it either. Right. It's not that he kept it for another day. It's that he had to, right. He had to be, uh, himself as he started out saying, right. He couldn't, he couldn't do both things. He has to abide by those sort of limitations of of being um an individual in in the modern world. Um you don't get to sort of have your cake and eat it too. So um, yeah. the the, yeah, the final
0: no go
1: on no just the final thing I'd say here I guess uh is this 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 element of, of doubt, right? The 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 knowing in the one line and then the doubting in the next are, are interesting and they're how they kind of reinforce each other actually um, and again I, I would sort of point to I guess poetry as a way to get to know and doubt and act all in one you know you sort of remain unified although of course you can't write more than <laughs> one poem at a time but yeah yeah I don't know
0: yeah so again we get a morning image in here, uh, which just like the two roads, very famous sort of epic image, just not, not only in Dante, but also of course in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, rosy-fingered dawn, uh, consort to Tithonus. But that when he was a kid, if we take the sort of age and transition metaphor as happening here, he, the poem began with him reflecting on where he is now with the yellow trees, the autumnal trees, the past middle age um, um, metaphor going on there um, with the tree um, and now we reflect on when he was younger as a child and he's reflecting on his path and um, I, I think what's interesting and potentially very psychologically significant is the notion that one has to lie to oneself that the opportunities one does not take when one seizes another, when one sort of um, uh, uh, seizes the day, a uh, carpe diem uh, that, that that one does not kill off the opportunities for all other possible days, and that especially as a child, when one is made of possibility and potential, that that may be sort of like a um, uh, a terror management or a Freudian theory for why we uh, what we have to repress about what we are doing in order to do anything, because how could you ever do something if you became so overwhelmed with the amount of things that you were not doing in that moment as well. And I would actually say as a young person that did sort of hit me and still to some extent does the the sort of, uh, absolute potential that exists in any moment for the amounts of things you could do or the amount of books you could read and that actually focusing on doing one, especially for a creative person who sees, I think, a lot of potential in every moment to actually sort of nail themselves to that cross. And that, um, he does seem to have also uh, on his tone uh, to mention his tone, sort of a laughing nostalgia at the end. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. It actually recalls to me sort of the tone of our good friend, David Alden for recurrent events, how he would tell a story. Uh, Robert Frost does remind me of his manner of telling the story and that sort of sing song wise, Tom Bombadil sort of way. Um, but um, he, he, um, He does seem to recognize that because humans exist in space-time, you do carve your own path no matter where you are because you do exist as a unique person, a unique space-time at all times. Um, And once you have done something in one moment instead of something else, that exact moment, you know, Panta Ray, all things flow, you can't step in the same river twice, ship of Theseus, uh, um, you know, dissipated systems – you, you can't come back, you know? You go to Disneyland one day and not Universal, you might go to Universal again another day, but you won't ever get to have the day that you would have. And um, I, see that, I see that as a very interesting reflection because he seems to be reflecting not only on his life as the sun, but also the shadow it casts too, as if the entirety of one's life is not only what one has chosen to do and what one has done, but also one, what one has omitted and not done, that that's sort of like the moon or the night aspect of one's existence.
1: Yeah, the the idea that there's maybe a another hymn in some other universe that chose the other road, right, is, is sort of implied there. And if this was like a science fiction story or a fantasy, then that would be sort of the um, the, conceit around which the story would, would develop. But, but of course, it's a sort of ruminating, as you say, a little bit sing song kind of everyday speech sort of poem. And so, and so that's just kind of there, uh, to, to read into it. Um, and, and that's the way that you sort of get to do that is with that sort of aside that he makes there. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Right. And his, um, his retrospective mode, you know, comes back there at the end, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, right? He extrapolates forward into time to imagine himself looking back. So it's a really interesting double movement there. Um, two roads diverged in a wood. So he goes back to the beginning of the the poem. He He quotes, you know, word for word, the first words of the poem. And so we get that sort of going back to the point at which he made his decision, like, enacted in the language here. And then he has the, the break, right? The, um, the dash that we saw so much of with, with Dickinson. Um, it's used just once in the poem. It occupies that same kind of um, mid-stanza point that we saw the, the exclamation just before this. So that's that's clearly like an important point in these stanzas. And then we get that final closing lines that, as you say, are, are justly well-known and, and often quoted, right? I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So that very last line looks really different when you start, to, <laughs> and you know, pun intended maybe, I don't know, probably not, but when you start to think about it in ter- in terms as we've been doing as as a more psychological kind of reading, has it made any difference actually, or is it sort of the fact that he um, has has created this story about what he did that's, that's made a difference for him. That's like, it's impacted his sense of himself, you know, in some, in some way, or rather, again, his, his image of how he's going to have a sense of himself once he gets to this somewhere ages and ages hence moment, you know, that, that aspect of it is kind of interesting to think about too, that um, projecting forward a self who's going to be looking back, right. To, to sort of hope, and imagine that by the time you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and sort of say that you made uh, meaningful decisions, that you you broke new ground in some way, right, and you um, have made a difference. That's obviously a kind of hope that we need to have in order to ever <laughs> uh, get up in the morning and and, and to um, to question that or doubt, you know, a little bit seems healthy, because he does that in the course of the poem, But but to still sort of Hold on to that by the end equally seems necessary.
0: So I completely agree, but a couple clever things here just structurally. Just as there are three ands in the first stanza, he concludes the poem the poem with and being the first word of the penultimate stanza and then the last word of the ultimate stanza, including so thus filling out his his like cane five-line poem structure with five and so he does conclude structurally with the completion of the ends in the first in the first spot of the line in the first place on the line also with two eyes instead of two twos uh and the eyes are of course the roman numeral uh one i I suppose that might be a transcription thing but it's ending with ones and twos there seems to be a sense even structurally of finality uh, or, or completion or return to the beginning. We also get the two roads diverging in the woods, again, just like in the beginning, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, a little less descriptive. But um, uh, where, where I really agree with you and with the scholar who wrote that book in the Paris Review, is that you do get here his thesis borne out that this is a poem about telling or telling the experience of the, or telling the narrative, telling the narrative of this um, of this story, of, of the choice that was made rather than the choice itself, because I shall be telling this with a sigh, ah, somewhere ages and ages hence. So it's as if he is constructing the story rather than directly experiencing it, which made me wonder whether part of what this poem is about and part of what this sigh is about and the sort of sense of missed opportunity is that uh, this poem is about a person Thinking about how to describe uh, a choice he made rather than living out that choice to its, fully ex- its full extent and letting the narrative unfold itself before him and then just communicating that. That there might be a sense that what is missed in this poem is precisely that which would make this poem great, which would be that sense of lived experience or 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 this person actually telling us about the path they took and perhaps nostalgically missing the other path, but not focusing quite so much on how to tell the story, but rather living it out first and then reporting it to us without missing that essential middle part.
1: I Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's something I think any poet is probably forced to look at at some point, right? Or any writer, maybe any artist, because you sort of spend your time making these things, which is time that you are not spending, you know, out in the world of uh, experience and society, perhaps. So, so there's a kind of trade-off that's implied there. And, um, you know, maybe that's among the the fundamental decisions um, that a person makes is, is sort of How to spend their time with respect to, you know, things that are more creative, introspective, along that kind of road versus things that are more outgoing, um, maybe more external in some sense. Um, Maybe those paths are about the same, and maybe each person, though they think that they're choosing one or the other, really sort of has to in in some way construct their reasoning for that that decision which is made without their you know conscious knowledge or, and so that they're sort of inseparable from that choice the way that he talks about right not not getting to be more than one person I, I keep coming back to that idea um i think because i'm so conscious of the uh the way in which reading um is a shared activity, right? Like you can read and you can have your own interpretation, but uh, it's much more the case that anything worth reading is going to have many interpretations by many, many readers. And there's going to be, you know, this this activity of kind of discussing those interpretations is is just as um, essential uh, to the process. And this is something you were talking about before we kind of got on this particular text and, and started talking about frost but you know there's something to be said for that other road which is not you know reading and scholarly kind of stuff and creative kind of stuff but but more active forms of experience more maybe sociable or rambunctious even forms of experience um and and i wonder you know maybe that's part of the sigh right is that by by emphasizing by spending time on the one, you, you you miss out on the other a bit.
0: That's that's for sure. And it's funny that I've just come back from teaching about the sphere of Mercury um, in my Dante class, and I had my last lecture on that on Tuesday. Um, but what, what they, it's the second sphere of Paradiso, and the first three spheres have some small imperfection that mars them. Lust in the third from love, um, wavering or inconstancy from those who are constant in the first, the moon, but in the second, there are those who who sought for fame and had worldly ambition, and so neglected their contemplative lives and the pursuit of worldly glory. Um, their intellects, their minds, cultivating them, their sel- themselves, and their ability to communicate. You know the profound things they understand about the structure of being, which is the measure of a philosopher. Um, and so, it is. It is. Interesting also to see even in art how that's represented. My student who I, I mentioned to you recently on recurrent events, who has become very interested in the great books, he started with Aristophanes' The Clouds of All Works. And that that is itself a comedian making fun of a philosopher claiming that he's essentially a crank. And so it's funny at what perspective, you know, from which perspective you can come At anything, right? Like on the one hand, there's the traditional contemplative active life distinction, and some people are more active, some people more contemplative, and Frost here seems to be sort of sighing at being more of the contemplative sort than the active sort. But then even there are additional perspectives of like those who are serious and those who are jocular, and those who are jocular laugh at the serious people, whether they're active or contemplative or not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it sort of opens up this whole range of of different dichotomies of the things that sort of influence your choices, right? And and they do seem to come in these kind of couples, like uh, like those you're describing. And and yet the the point seems to be here, right, that they are are they are really like unified and sort of equally important. There's a yes. an aspect of this that, that seems to you know call forth the kind of essential unity that we're striving after, I think, though I couldn't maybe make this point, I could be overreaching when I'm trying to make this point, but I think that the way that the syllables work might, might lead you to kind of think about that as well, because they're not perfect iambic pentameter, they're, they're all either nine or I think some eight uh, syllable lines. And that's kind of interesting, it's like, it's reaching for but not quite getting to that, that sort of natural conversational completion of the traditional iambic pentameter sort of the way that it's it's reaching for and not able to encompass both these these roads and again that might be a bit of a stretch but i don't know we should probably wrap this one up um, yeah
0: yeah 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 it just makes me think one last thought which is that, that is precisely what the paradiso is about and what is said on the sphere of mercury is that what makes a sem- you know what makes a piece of music sweet is the diversity of the notes within it and so seeing things as part of a complete whole and the value of all of them within it, and that if one experience is not yours, then certainly another is, and that perhaps it's best if all those experiences exist, even if you don't have them all yourself. So I don't I don't know, perhaps a stretch, but not a stretch by other minds' um, perceptions. Uh,
1: well said. Well, I, I do want to do a, uh, a discussion more specifically about some of this educational material and how it's kind of come into the news lately, um, but we'll have to save that I guess for another day. Here, this has been a great um, entry into Frost's poetry. I'm looking forward to reading more of it and uh, and seeing where we, which which road we go down, and where where we where it takes. Me too.
0: And uh, you know, the more I read Dante, the more I agree with I'll say Frost and Dante, which I care less about the the road and how it looks at outset and more how far I go down it because I think the path one treads along the road and just how long and far one goes and how interesting and complicated and twisted that road gets and the form it ends up making is what I think that's what being truly is I think that's what a career or curriculum is modeled after especially if you look at the etymology of those words and I I think that that is the true measure of man How far and deep can you go into that which you do? And so I'm looking forward to going deep, Wes. Let's get into these woods because they never end. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one. You too. Happy weekend. Yep.